and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We continue with our exposition of what is called the Lord's Prayer. And if you would, stand with me and let's pray. Ask God's blessing and then I'll read that portion of Scripture. Let us pray. Now, Father, in the name of Christ, come and open our eyes to see and understand. Open our ears to hear your good word. Open our hearts to receive it, to understand it, to believe it. Give us all the encouragement we need, Lord, as we feast upon your word. Give us all the grace we need to be built up and edified as a body as a body of believers, Lord, edify us. Strengthen our understanding of your word. Increase our assurance. Give us hope in this life of what it means, Lord, to walk with you in in a humble way. But Lord, come and bless the name of Jesus to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the word, I want to begin reading chapter 6 at verse 9. Hear now the word of God. Pray then in this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us of our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, we move this morning to the next petition In verse 12, which is forgive us of our debts as we have also have forgiven our debtors. Now, this prayer is our Lord Jesus instructing us on how to pray. If you read the Gospels, you'll find that this was something on the mind of the disciples because they witnessed Jesus praying a lot. Jesus not only sought private counsel with his father, but he prayed openly and publicly and oftentimes in the presence of his disciples. And you have to, you, we have to understand that the disciples would see the father answer his son's prayers. That the father would answer Jesus' prayers and the disciples wanted to pray like Jesus. They wanted to pray prayers like Christ. They wanted their Father to answer their prayers. And so they asked the Lord in this context, Lord, teach us to pray. Now this is Jesus' answer to the question or to their petition. Teach us to pray. In this petition... Which is, the, which is going to be our focus this morning, 
is addressed to our daily guilt. This is something that Jesus brings up as He teaches us to pray. We ought to understand what are we to do with our guilt. What do we do with it? How do we handle guilt? Where do we take it? How do we get rid of it? And this is a question just as important as it was then to address and deal with guilt. It's very important today as well. We may even have way, uh, we may have many more ways of addressing and dealing with guilt than even they did from a human perspective. Our culture and society has, has inc- created an industry dealing with guilt and taking it away. I mean, that's one thing that we lean on you know, science for, right? Guilt is no longer a personal, religious, conscious issue. Many today will say, well, it's a scientific issue. It's an environmental issue that that guilt is bad. It creates all sorts of problems for the individual. But the way to address and deal with this guilt is not through religion. Religion is a culprit that creates this guilt. We ought to deal with it scientifically, philosophically instead of religiously. And that's all I'm going to say about it at this time. But these are things to keep in mind as you listen to the sermon and particularly as we get into next week as I address and particularly deal with what it means to forgive others and what that looks like and how that's practice. Our Lord is teaching us to pray. He is teaching us that we ought to be Uh, seekers of the will of God, that we ought to be mindful about doing His will just as Jesus was mindful in doing the will of His Father. Jesus teaches us that prayer is essential to the life of every Christian. Every Christian. Essential. That's not a a mix-up of words or me speaking um, thoughtlessly. Christians are to pray. And prayer is an evidence of grace in our lives. Prayer is an evidence of grace. In fact, you could put it this way. It's impossible to go before a court and prove to the jury that you are a Christian if you lack prayer. You say, well, I pray. Well, we're not talking about those prayers where you just want something. We're talking about praying, seeking God's face, seeking His His pleasure, seeking His guidance, seeking His wisdom, seeking to walk with Him, seeking to be pleasing in His sight. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. A Christian who is prayerless is nothing but a legalist and a formalist. And I don't want you to be guilty of any one of those. If you're here this morning and your life is predominantly marked by prayerlessness, ask yourself two questions. Number one, am I a legalist? 
Is my obedience nothing more than my humanistic effort to please God apart from Christ? Because see, if prayer is a mark of, of, of justifying grace and I'm prayerless, then I'm saying I have, no, I have not been justified. I have not, I have not been introduced to those saving graces that, have, that recreate me in the image of Christ, that make me a new creation in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, we will not be able to say as such... We were, whether we, you know, we can't say we used to be like that, but now we're no longer like that anymore. You can't say that if you're prayerless. Obedience is nothing more than than legalism and your worship is nothing more than formality. A lot of people come on Sundays to church and worship to assuage their guilt in a formal way. It's formalism. They don't seek God's favor and blessing. They don't seek to be reconciled to God. They just seek to have that conscience momentarily appeased by some act of their own where they can assuage their conscience and then go on living a life that is not becoming of a true child of God. Prayer is not only essential to the Christian, to the Christian life or Christianity in particular, but brothers and sisters, prayer is essential for Christian growth and sanctification. Our growth is very much connected to our seeking God's face in prayer. Growing up in those Christian graces of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Growing up in these graces of the Holy Spirit requires us seeking God's face. Seeking the pardon of our daily failures. Seeking God's strength. Seeking God's counsel. Seeking God's wisdom. Seeking God to bless us in every endeavor we put our hands to in this life. It's essential to your growth and mine and all true Christians that if we are going to grow up in those graces granted to us through Christ, we must be a praying people. We must be prayer, very prayer oriented in our lives if we are going to see God working in our lives in a very special and dutiful way. When I say dutiful, it means that way in which we are granted assurance of our relationship with Him. You see, our weakness can be very much related to our prayerlessness. Now, as Christians, we'll never be truly prayerless. We'll never be truly void of that personal desire for the Father in Christ because the Holy Spirit is working in us the things of God. The Spirit is working in us and has regenerated us and made us alive. But yet our weakness can be directly connected to our own failures in seeking His face as our Heavenly Father. 
You know, I want us to ask ourselves the question this morning, is my weakness related to prayerlessness? Is my weakness related to not understanding prayer or not really understanding how we should pray or how I should pray or what does it mean to truly seek God's face? Those weaknesses that we exhibit in our vulnerability to certain temptations due to prayerlessness. See, we don't pray and ask God for protection and strength. In the next petition, we're going to talk about this more particularly and lead us not into temptation. But how often have our own temptations caused us to stumble in such a way that we see, seem, it seems that we are in a rut spiritually. Our assurance is affected. Our hopes are affected. Our encouragement is affected. And how we deal with and address others is affected as well. If we are not assured, brothers and sisters of our own walk with the Father, and that He is walking with us and blessing us in this life, how am I going to encourage my brother and sister if I don't seek it myself? You can see how important this prayer is and you can see the need that every christian has to know this prayer to understand it to truly see what christ is teaching us here in this prayer now brothers and sisters let's look particularly at verse 12 here jesus teaches us to ask for forgiveness forgive us and forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Now it's important that we take the time to make some connections if we're going to really understand what Jesus is teaching us here. As I think I've already demonstrated, every petition is pregnant and full of all kinds of truth. It's not singular but multifaceted, and every petition can be subdivided and subdivided and divided even into more pieces where we ought to understand that we're not simply just to pray the prayer and expect or act as if we understand it, but that we ought to understand deeply and intimately what every petition is demanding of us, that we'd understand it. That when we go to our God and we ask Him to forgive us of our debt, our debts, we in our mind and our heart run the gamut of our debts. We understand what is being asked here. If you don't understand how much of a debtor you really are, then how are you going to appreciate? Him cleansing you of your guilt. If you don't think you're a a, a big debtor, then you're not going to think Him to be a big God full of forgiveness and mercy. So we need to understand what's being, what Jesus is teaching us to do here. So I want to make some connections. And the reason I want to make these connections is because if we miss them, I think it's going to, it's going to, we're going to be short-sighted in the way we understand the prayer as a whole. The prayer as a whole. Understanding what the flow of it. Understanding it from beginning to end. And understanding how the parts relate 
together in the whole picture of what we understand to be the Lord's Prayer. The first connection I want to make with you is how Jesus, in verse 12, begins the sentence with a conjunction. Notice the and in your Bibles. Now that's a very important and. That's a very important connection we need to make. Jesus begins verse 12 connecting it to verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. And what did we learn about that petition? We learned in that petition that we ought to seek God's face for all of the blessings that He has uh, uh, provided for us in Christ Jesus. All of the blessings. All of the blessings that pertain to us in this life. We are to seek God's face for and petition Him for them. And here Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is related to and connected to those blessings. That is, brothers and sisters, simply this. These blessings do not come to us in a vacuum. These blessings do these blessings do not come to us simply because we ask for them or simply because we're church members. Are simply because we are professing believers in Christ. These blessings, all of these blessings that our Father has set aside for us in Christ belong to us. And yet they belong to us as we walk in the grace of the Spirit of God and in accordance with the pardon of sin. Does everybody understand that? That these blessings are connected by our Lord Jesus in teaching us the Lord's Prayer. That these blessings are connected to our daily pardon of sin. Now I say daily because of the word daily being used up in verse 11. Not only are we to pray and ask God for our daily bread, but we ought to also Uh, Pray and ask God's forgiveness and pardon of our debts daily. Now, let's make the connection that these two things are naturally connected. Jesus is not doing anything abnormal here in His teaching. He is doing something that is very much biblical and taught throughout The Word of God. And I'm going to demonstrate to you how the whole counsel of God's Word connects the blessings of God with the pardon of sin and naturally with the things of God. That is this life. How do I put it? Let's put it simply if you take notes. This life is intimately connected with the next life. This life is intimately connected with the next life. Let's go in our Bibles, or at least let's think about it. Let's, well, go to Genesis 2. Again, I am certainly countering uh, particularly this, the, the human philosophy or the human philosophy that prevails in many Christian circles and with, among many Christians is that God doesn't really care about this life. It's only the next life that we ought to care about. We ought to, you know, not really care about how we work, 
our character and relationships with others, but only that we pray privately or only that we worship. And, you know, and, and let me tell you what that's produced. See, that's produced this pietism. You know what pietism is? Pietism is not piety. We all want to be pious. We all want to be, be of high character. We all want to have a high character. We all want to, to shape and mold our outward lives into a high character and virtue where we are, we can, we are honorable before our brothers and sisters. Pietism though, is this teaching that somehow the spiritual things override those things. And I could even, I could lie, cheat, and steal. But when I go to worship and I sing these hymns, I shed a tear. Oh, I feel close to God. I cry and weep when we pray. I weep when we sing these praise songs because I'm just so sensitive to spiritual matters. And then I can, but yet, I have a, a, there's a divorce between that me and how I treat my brothers and sisters, how I act on a daily basis. Everybody understand that? That's pietism. Pietism never connects the two. Pietism is never going to, to hurt. He's never going to do what Psalm 15 says. You swear to your own hurt. Pietism ain't going to do that. Pietism is going to make an excuse why to always fall into your favor. And do, you know, but I love God. I love God. You can't challenge that. You can't challenge my love for God. Now, brothers, what I want to tell you is that's wrong. What I want to help you understand is wrong. It's unbiblical. It's heretical. It has a, it's detrimental, not only to your own life and salvation, and not only in the forfeit of these tremendous blessings that God has for all who believe and trust in Him in Christ Jesus. But brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. It's dangerous, it's harmful, it's hurtful, and it's detrimental to the church of Christ. In Adam, we see his creation. Look at verse 7. And then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living being. We see right there in man's formation and creation, this life is connected with the next. How so? What's man made out of? The dust of the ground. Here we have the earth. Here we have the physical creation that God spoke into existence. We have man formed. His body is formed out of the dust of the ground. So how is this life connected to the next? What does God do next in the verse? God breathes into his nostrils the breath of lives. The breath of life. The Holy Spirit inhabits him. And his soul animates that dirt. And man does what? He becomes something. What does the verse tell us he becomes? He becomes a living being. Or actually the Hebrew is he becomes a living soul. He's a living soul. This life is connected with the next. With, this life is intimately connected with the next. At our creation. We have man made out of the dust of the ground, inhabited. 
and made a living being by the breath of heaven, by the breath of God. Secondly, man, this, there is an intimate connection at our salvation. Now, in order to understand this connection, we have to understand what man lost in the fall. What did man lose in the fall? When he sinned against God, what was his loss? The presence of God. The presence of God. The power of God. When you lose the presence of God, what do you lose? Everything. 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 And see, when we... For example, if you lose the presence of God, you lose the power of God. If you lose the presence of God, you lose the wisdom of God. If you lose the presence of God, you you lose the guidance and will of God. If you lose His presence, then you lose the knowledge of God. That's behind the verse where Isaiah speaks clearly. He says, my people perish. Through the prophet Isaiah, God says, my people perish. For what? Lack of knowledge or revelation. What? God's presence. When God's present, He reveals Himself to His people. Now, brothers and sisters, that's our greatest need is His presence. His presence in our midst. That's why the blessing that that Matthew closes out the Gospel with when the Lord Jesus tells His disciples and He says, Oh, lo, I will be with you to the very end of the ages. What's He saying? That's reminiscent of the garden. That's reminiscent of the connection man had with God fully and completely at all times. Remember what God would do? He would come down and walk with them in the cool of the day. He would come to Adam and Eve and talk to them. And they would worship Him. And they would bless His name. But what did sin do? Sin, sin, in sinning, man forfeited the presence of God. And that's why Adam hid from Him. That's why Adam hid from Him. So I want to make sure we understand what man lost. He lost everything. That's why he died. He died. Why? Because in the presence of God, there is life and life everlasting. Okay? You want everlasting life. You are going to have to walk in the presence of God. You're going to have to walk in all that it means in His presence and His countenance. That's why, you know, when, you know, when I'd go and I would read from the book of Numbers and I would read the benediction out of Numbers at the end of the service and the countenance of God and the face of God shine upon you. That's His presence. Oh, may you leave here in the presence of God. And may you abide and live out the week in the presence of God. What a blessing. Is there a greater blessing? So we have to understand what we lost. But now we have to know what we gain in salvation in Christ. What do we gain? We gain the presence of God back. Why is Jesus called Emmanuel? What does the name Emmanuel mean? The name Emmanuel means God with us. 
Oh, that's why we love singing several of those good Christmas hymns, right? Because those hymns exalt, if you will, that presence of God, the incarnation of Christ coming to save sinful men and restoring that fellowship and presence of God in the full, in a very full and, and beautiful way. Now, brothers and sisters, Man is made alive in Christ. He gains through that relationship with Christ God's favor and God's favorable presence. Now, we'll look at some passages later. I want to put these thoughts into your head and heart so you can meditate and think upon these things. There's another connection we need to make. That's glorification. So you see, in our salvation, this life is connected with the next in that we are again indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But what happens in this life when we die and our bodies are planted in the ground and our souls go on to be with the Lord in heaven? That's not the end of the story. That's not the end of it. That is, if that was all that was all there is, then we could just declare it over. But that's not over. It's not the end of the story. That is, all of those saints that have died in Christ Jesus, their bodies have been put in the ground, their souls are now before the throne of God or the throne of Christ in heaven. Those souls sit waiting to be reunited with their bodies. There's another connection between this life and the next that's permanent. Let's look at, on this point, let's look at a few passages of Scripture. Uh, turn to uh, Revelation chapter 20. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let's let's get, wait. Go there. Let's go to First Thessalonians. Let's go to First Thessalonians, chapter four. I want to I want to save the text in Revelation for another point. Look at First Thessalonians chapter four, verse thirteen and following. I'm making the point that our bodies are going to be raised. And I'm going, to, I'm going to fill it in as we go along. But look at verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, that about those who are asleep. Now that's another metaphor for dead. Those who have died. So that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Remember now, the saints who die in Christ are considered to be sleeping. That's temporal. When you go to sleep, you're, what's the presupposition is that you're going to get back up. Okay? The saints are asleep in Christ. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. Jesus died and rose again. Guess what? We're going to die and rise again. Our bodies. How did Jesus, how was Jesus raised again? With a body. Okay? 
with a body. What did he tell Matthew or Thomas to do? Put your fingers in the holes. Touch my scars. Put your hand in my side. So whatever Jesus looked like, we know this. We know that he had a body. We know that his body was not bound by the rules and laws of this life because he walked through a wall. We know that his body had in it the scars of his crucifixion. Okay? So keep that in mind. Verse 15, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The point of that text is that we are going to be raised from the dead. Now let me give you just a practical, uh, a practical application of this. Because it's important to recognize it when you hear it and you're going to hear it. I've heard it multiple times, and, and you're going to know it when, you, when I tell it to you. How many times that we have made, me have said, so-and-so's not in the grave. Have you ever been standing around the graveside and saying, say, well, well, that's not so-and-so. So-and-so's in heaven. Well, according to the teaching of Scripture, so-and-so's in two places. Because something abnormal has happened to them. Their soul has been ripped from their body. And it's an abnormal thing. That's why at the very end of the day, when our bodies are reunited with our souls, our salvation will be complete. Okay? That's why we're waiting for judgment day. That's why we're waiting for that great day of Christ to come so that all who are already in heaven, and if we go before Jesus comes back, guess what? We're going to be in heaven praising and worshiping God, but our salvation is still going to be incomplete because we're going to long for our bodies. And Jesus is not going to reunite our souls with our bodies until he raises them up at the very last day. See, the believers in two places in heaven and in that ground. And that body is going to be raised from the dead. So you need to understand something. When you look at that gravestone, you can say, hey, there lies old brother Jess. That's true. And it's also true, hopefully, our dear brother's in heaven waiting for the reuniting of his soul and body for that great day of Christ Jesus. See, there's expectation involved. There's anticipation right now, even in heaven, among the souls that are around the throne of God. When, when, when will it be over? Pray this day come quickly. Pray, O Lord Jesus, come quickly. There's an anticipation and longing for the whole saints to be completely uh, saved in Christ. But that means uniting souls back with their glorified bodies that Jesus is going to glorify when he raises them from the dead. So we need to understand something. That's to, this is what to do what? Understand, brothers and sisters, that we must make the connection that this life and all of those blessings are intimately connected with our religion and faith. 
Intimately connected with God's presence with us. Intimately connected with our worship. And how we, how we adore and serve Him and love Him or not. Okay? Or not. Now this text addresses and deals with man's sinfulness or, or even the saint's sinfulness. It relates to sin because that was what fractured man's relationship with God in the first place. Man chose sin. He chose to defy God what was rightfully his at creation. Obedience. What was rightfully his. Man chose to live apart from God and even without the pardon of sin. Did Adam go seeking after God? Did Adam go seeking for pardon of sin? He did not. It was God who's full of mercy and grace who went after Adam, who went to have that relationship restored with him. It was God who sought after him. It was not man seeking after God. Adam forfeited those blessings when he sinned against God. He forfeited all of that good, all of that goodness that God had originally planned and desired to give to him by sinning. Second connection. The second connection where we demonstrate from the Scriptures that this life is intimately connected with the next. I'm going to mention a couple of them. Write them down, Luke 16, 19 and following. Now, that's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. That's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now, we focused on that last, uh, last week. My point this week is that what? What followed Lazarus and the rich man into the next life? Their lives. Now, what are your deeds Your deeds are your character. Your deeds are the outworking of character. If you are a scoundrel at heart, you will find ways to work out scandal to others. If you are selfish at heart, you can mask it, you can hide it, you can lie about it, but you are going to work out selfishness in all of your other relationships. Your deeds are nothing more than the outworking of who you are. Character. Our own culture has sought to erase that truth by saying, well, I know, you know what, but that's not who I am. I hear this all the time. A man can commit adultery against his wife and a wife. I mean, adultery is rampant today among married couples. It is. In fact, I, I hear couples um, in interviews and, and uh, articles that I read to try to keep up pace with what's going on in the world, and it's tr- happening so fast that that most couples now just anticipate their parent, their their husband or wife cheating on them. It's just the way it is. It's just our life. It's just society. And there's really nothing you can do about it. So they just, you know, he'll cheat, I'll cheat, and we'll have a good time for a while. And then we'll, that's the way 
Satan wants people to live, but that's not the way God made us to live. Our deeds follow us into the next life. Who we are follows us into the next life. And you can't escape that. You can't escape that. God is just. And you're going to be judged based on what you do. We're going to look at some of those. But the rich man, Lazarus, find themselves into eternity and all dealing with and related to how they were in this life. Another connection, isn't it? That what we do here is very, very important. Turn to probably the easiest passage to recognize, Matthew 25. Matthew 25. Here, the Lord Jesus is teaching about Judgment Day. And He is teaching us that there is a vital connection between this life and the next by the things we do, by our activities and by our deeds. Look at verse 31. And when the, man, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him... Then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered uh, before him and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry... Now notice who inherits the kingdom. For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Now I don't need to go on and finish reading the parable, do I? Jesus is clear, isn't he? That the kingdom of God prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Eternity, this, this glorious, consummating kingdom at the end of days belong to those who have shown in their lives a grace and a practice of grace that has been theirs through Christ Jesus. Their good works, their good deeds are not merited to their own strength and understanding their good deeds are merited to the saving work of Christ and the Holy Spirit working in them and they complying with that grace. They demonstrating that they have been justified uh, from their sins by carrying out these kind acts and deeds of mercy and grace to others. See, that completely comes right back to our prayer and our petition. Forgive us of our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. See, now's a good time to address the misnomer here 
A lot of people read this petition and they say, well, what we're asking God to do is we're asking God, well, God, I'm a forgiving person, and because I'm a forgiving person, I want you to forgive me. That's not it. God doesn't work that way. It's not based upon human endeavor and effort. What the text is teaching and what we see throughout Scripture is this. Because we have been forgiven. Because we have been justified. Because we have already had all our sins covered by the blood of Jesus. We now by grace seek to walk in the presence of our God. Confessing our daily sins. See, the confession of daily sin is a direct result of being justified in Christ once and for all. That's why a Christian, I mean, if you're going to, if you're going to pray, I mean, you ought to be praying and forgive me of my sins. Right? And that justification also is a result of the grace you extend to others. So that justif- our justification in Christ, that is Christ's forgiveness, Lord, forgive me of my sins. When we come to Christ, what do we pray? Lord, forgive me for all my sins. Lord, forgive me for all my past sins. Forgive me of my present sins and forgive me of all my future sins in Christ Jesus. I beg you in the name of Jesus, cover my sins with the blood of Christ. It, does, it happens. The proof of a child of God is twofold. One, being a daily walk in pardon of sins. And two, extending grace to others who ask you to forgive them of their sins. Okay? So we need to understand that what is done in this life follows us into the next Multiple passages of Scripture that teach this. I'm going to go through and just give you some of these passages. And this is what I I won't have time to really develop another point. But I I want to end with this. I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that when we pray and we ask God to pardon our sins, that that is a grace that flows out of our justification in Christ. It's, 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 the, it's the sanctifying results, if you will, of the grace flowing out of being made the children of God. And we are the children of God because we what? We want to walk in the presence of our Father and we don't want anything to interrupt that. Revelation 20 and verse 12 And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 2, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but to others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. What 
What is this disgrace and everlasting contempt? That is, when a man or woman leaves this earth in the perverseness of their sins, whether it be self-religion, whether it be atheism, when they leave this life in the disgrace of their sins, they are leaving this life in contempt of God Almighty, who has offered to the world salvation in His blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is freely offered to all who just believe upon Him. That contempt and disgrace will follow them into the next life, and they will be judged according to that contempt and grace. The Lord Jesus in John 5, verse 28 and 29 said this, Do not marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life. Those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Now brothers and sisters, there's even some Christian doctrine going around that says, well, Christians don't have to worry about it. We're just going to skip right on through judgment. It's not what the Scriptures say. Look, here's just how Christ is going to be glorified. We stand before God. The books are opened. Here's what you thought. Scary. Here's what you said. Really scary. Here's what you did. Scary. Here's what you did in light of the truth. But because I had favor upon you and you believed in my son Jesus, your sins have been wiped away. Your sins are covered. Come. Enter into the kingdom of God reserved for you from the foundation of the world that is yours by grace. Now, brothers and sisters, do you want to get up and shout and run around the room? Go ahead. Because that's exactly what it's designed to do. It's to cause us to want to serve Him. To cause us to love Him. Jesus asked His disciples, Peter. He gave Peter an example and He said, Peter, who is forgiven? Um, who is the one who loves much and believes and trusts much and, and does much? He said, is it the one who is forgiven little or the one that's forgiven more? I mean, who, who loves the creditor more? The one who's forgiven for $5 or the one who's forgiven for $50 million? Peter goes, well, it's the one that was forgiven much. And Jesus looked at him and he said, Well, Peter, since I've come into this room, you have yet to wash my feet. You have yet to anoint my head with oil. And this woman, a prostitute, has not stopped washing my feet with her tears. She's not stopped wiping my feet with her hair. She's not stopped praising my name. She's a prostitute. She knew she was guilty. She knew what she deserved. And Jesus said, she has found salvation.
The Apostle Paul teaches the very same thing. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, he says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that no one may be recompensed, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Brothers, I've tried to make the connection. This life is intimately connected to the next. And we are to beseech God on a daily basis for the pardon of our sins. If we've been justified in Christ, we want to do it. Jesus is teaching believers to pray. This is not a prayer of salvation. This is a prayer of restoration. This is a prayer of walking with God. This is a prayer of restored fellowship. This is, a, this is what we pray to walk in sanctification. This is not a prayer of salvation where it begins. This is a prayer that you pray while you're saved, when you're saved, and to prove you're saved. But why? I'm going to have to cover that next week. I'm going to have to cover what forgiveness is and why we need to seek after it next week. Brothers and sisters, what you are in this life, in Christ, you know what you are, a new creation, amen, created in Christ Jesus for good works, Ephesians 2.10, that have been ordained before the foundation of the world for you to do. You've been filled with the Holy Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Seek to have these graces made full in your life and then you will have the blessings. All of those blessings that Christ has set apart for you will be full in your life. Let's pray.